0: The book of Jonah, we've been on a journey through this short, powerful book, and today we're going to wrap it up. I hope you have enjoyed Jonah as much as I have. Jonah chapter 4, we saw in chapter 3 that Jonah finally does get to Nineveh, he proclaims the message of God, a five-word sermon, and the whole city repents, 120,000 plus people repent. And uh, we saw at the end of chapter 3 and verse 10 when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. And then last week we stepped into chapter 4 and we saw that Jonah is mad. He's mad at the mercy of God. And uh, we saw that he has the attitude this is all wrong. Everything about this is wrong. It's messed up. It ain't right. And uh, that's where we started last week. Well today let's that you look again at chapter 4, we're going to take this whole chapter together and wrap up our study. So Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. It was great evil to Jonah. It was evil to Jonah with great evil that God relented, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. If you're going to let them live, just kill me. Then the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant, but God appointed a worm when, he came down, when it came dawn the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow up or cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Well, if you have your bulletin, there's that listening guide on the back back panel. We start, first of all, with a pouting prophet. We began several weeks ago with a runaway prophet. (laughs) The word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, and he arose and went the other way. So we had a runaway prophet, this prodigal prophet. Now we have a pouting prophet. Prophet, so he is mad about the mercy of God, that God has relented from from judging uh, the city of Nineveh, and in verse four, when God asked the question, "Do you have good reason to be angry?" jonah doesn 't even answer the question he just He just storms off. He goes off east of the town, and he builds himself a shelter. The word for shelter here is is the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. It's just this little shelter made out of branches and leaves. So he goes and makes himself a little shelter, sits under in the shade so he can see what would happen in the city. If you'll remember, we said that God is the God of second chances. God gave Nineveh a second chance. God gave Jonah a second chance. Well, this is Jonah giving God a second chance. <laughs> so he goes outside of town, builds this little tabernacle, this, little, this, this hut, if you will. And so he's just going to wait and give God a second chance. Maybe God will relent concerning his relenting about the calamity that he was going to bring upon the city of Nineveh. Maybe their repentance won't last. We'll give it 40 days. Remember, that was the sermon, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, I'll give it 40 days, and who knows, maybe I'll get to see some Sodom and Gomorrah kind of action before it's over. So he's giving God a second chance to come through on what he thinks God ought to do. Here's the irony. Inside the city... We saw the king of Nineveh wearing sackcloth and sitting on the ashes, hoping and praying that his city would not be destroyed. And here's the prophet of God outside the city, hoping and praying that the city would be destroyed. But we have this pouting prophet just out here, mad. Mad at God, mad at the whole situation. Then I also want you to see in our text, we have a sovereign God. We have a sovereign God. We saw a couple of weeks ago the repentance of the Ninevites here in chapter 3. A repentance done right. Remember, Jonah is preaching 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It doesn't take 40 days. It's a three-day's walk. It doesn't take one day's walk. I mean, one day, day one, the whole city repents. From the king, from the greatest of them to the least of them, the whole city repents. Now I want to show you a little something that's not in the text. Have you ever wondered, man, how did that happen so quickly? How, how is it that a whole pagan city was so ready to repent on day one? Well, we might have a little light to shed on that subject. Again, it's not in the text, but here's what we know. The Assyrians are pagans. They don't have the Word of God. They don't know the God of Israel. They are pagans. They are superstitious. And archaeologists have unearthed some Assyrian omen texts. And you know an omen is a bad sign. It's a sign that something bad is going to happen. That's an omen. And the Assyrian omen text said this. When there's a solar eclipse, that's an omen. And a solar eclipse can be a sign that something bad is about to happen. For example, when a solar eclipse occurred, it was an omen, one, that the king will be deposed and killed and a worthless fellow will assume the throne. So a solar eclipse could mean that our king's going to be deposed and killed and we're going to sorry king in his place. Or it could be a solar eclipse could be an omen that the king will die and rain from heaven will flood the land and there will be a famine due to the flooding. Or a solar eclipse could be an omen that a deity will strike the king and consume the land with fire. Well, that's bad too. Or a solar eclipse could be an omen that the city walls will be destroyed. And that means we're vulnerable to enemy attacks. All those are bad things. So solar eclipse is an omen of something bad to come. There are indications that when some of these Assyrian kings, when there was an omen in play, They would just kind of quietly resign the kingship, let somebody else sit on the throne for a minute. (laughs) When the danger is passed, then they'd come back and and resume their reign. But why don't you sit here for a little while? Now, the text, our biblical text, does not name the king in play in chapter 3. Who is the king of Nineveh here in Jonah chapter 3? Well, the text doesn't tell us. It could be Asherdan the third. Now, we already saw at the beginning of our study, Jonah is a real man who lived in a real place in real time. He is a historic figure. So he's a real man who lived in a real place. He preached and lived and ministered under the reign of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. Jeroboam II's reign was coincidental. It coincided with the III of Assyria. If this king of Nineveh is the III, here are some things we know about his reign. For example, there was a solar eclipse in the 10th year of his reign, there was a solar eclipse. We know this astronomically. June the 15th, 763. Remember all those bad things that happen when there's a solar eclipse? Or Asherdan the III was also a weak emperor. His empire was losing ground on the borders, and some of that expanded territory was being regained by their enemies. So he's a weak emperor, and he's losing ground on the borders. There was an earthquake during the reign of Asherdan. Now, we don't know if that's number one, number two, or number three. But if it's during the reign of Asherdan III, well, then this is just one more bullet in the gun, one more reason for people to be anxious, half afraid, and ready for a message of repentance. Famine would point to divine disfavor. When there's a famine, it's because you've upset the gods. And there are several indications of famine during a seven-year period of Asherdan III's reign. So famine... Again, speaks to divine displeasure. You've upset the gods. And then there are also rebellions against the Dan III um, until 758 B.C. So if this is the king, if Asherdan Dan III, if that's the king of Nineveh that we have here, it makes sense that God, God's in the details. And it makes sense that God could use these circumstances and these superstitions all to prepare the heart of this king and his people for a message of hope. I mean, look at all that. we got eclipses, we got famines, we've got fires, we've got internal riots, we've, I mean, all oh, the solar eclipse, all this, God is in the details. God has already decided to have mercy on these people. Now, they, they have earned the judgment of God. God's already declared that. They have earned the singular judgment of God. But God is so merciful and gracious, he has sent a prophet to them. And the message is a message of repentance and hope. If you repent, you won't die. And so God, in his mercy and in that grace... It makes sense that God would use these circumstances, these events and their superstitions to prepare their hearts for God's message and God's messenger. And then lo and behold, one day this stranger comes into town. He ain't from around here. He talks funny. Here comes this stranger. Man, he smells like fish to high heaven. He stinks, but he smells like fish. Maybe his skin is bleached from the gastric juices of the fish. Maybe he's got some seaweed stuck in his hair. Who knows? But this guy comes walking into town and says, Forty days, and then it will be overthrown. And on the first day, the whole city repents from the, from the greatest to the least of them. Isn't that interesting? The king, or excuse me, God is in the details. Now, that's not in the text, okay? That's, that's conjecture. That's just, just maybe. That's not in the text. But let me show you what is in the text. We have omens for Assyria or the Ninevites, we have omens for, for Nineveh, but we do have in our text some appointments for Jonah. In the book of Jonah, we have four appointments. Back in chapter 2 and, and uh, or excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. He appointed, he ordained, he prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. We talked about that before. This fish was a means of deliverance, it delivered Jonah from certain death by drowning. So there's the first appointment. Here in chapter, th- in chapter 4, we get three more appointments God appointed a plant. He appointed, he prepared a plant. Now, scholars get all worked up about this plant, that God appointed, God prepared a plant that would come over and shade Jonah. Apparently the little booth that he built wasn't a great one, <laughs> so he's hot. So God ordains, prepares this plant to give him some extra shade, and Jonah is tickled pink. He is deliriously happy over this plant. Now, Jonah, uh, uh, scholars get excited, what kind of plant was this? Is it a castor oil plant? Is it a gourd What kind of plant would grow that fast and have big leaves and produce that kind of shape? It's really beside the point. It doesn't matter. It's kind of like the fish. What kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Was it a carp? What kind of fish was it? It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. God appointed a fish. God appointed a plant. Then God appoints a worm to come and kill the plant. What kind of worm was it? Who cares? God appointed a worm to kill the plant. Now watch this. God appointed a fish to deliver Jonah. God appointed a plant to make Jonah comfortable. Now God's going to appoint a worm to make Job, uh, Jonah uncomfortable, take away the plant. Now he's going to be uncomfortable. And then God appoints an east wind to make Jonah miserable. This is a hot east wind. Some of our soldiers, you've been over there around Nineveh, around Mosul and around there, and that hot east wind, it's not a refreshing, cool breeze. It's just a hot, dirty, sandy, gritty wind. It just makes misery more miserable. And so God is engineering these circumstances to get Job's attention. These are object lessons. So this plant, the worm, the wind, God is using all these circumstances, these conditions, to affect Jonah in certain ways. God is in the details. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Let's leave Jonah to the side. Let me say this to you. God is in the details of your life. We've said a number of times before, things happen in our lives for a variety of reasons out of, out of a variety of causes. We can just talk about bad things, bad things, hurtful things, harmful things that happen in our lives. Sometimes those things are just the result. It's just life it's just it's what happens. It's life, life in a fallen world. It's just life. Nobody's fault. It's just life. It just happens. Some of the things that happen to us are as a result of our own choices. You, you, we make dumb decisions and things happen. Or you make sinful choices or hurtful choices and there are consequences to those choices. Or, <coughs> excuse me, sometimes you're just collateral damage. It's not your fault But somebody close to you made bad decisions. Somebody close to you made sinful choices, harmful choices, and now you're just caught in the vortex of the pain that they caused. Or sometimes it can come from the hand of God. God himself may orchestrate circumstances or from the very hand of God bring some things into your life to make you uncomfortable. Jonah's a case in point. From the hand of God... God appointed a plant to make him comfortable, appointed a worm to make him uncomfortable, appointed a wind to make him miserable. That should be a cautionary tale right there for you and for me. We think God's number one agenda for us should be our comfort. That's our number one agenda. I want to be comfortable. I want to live a pain-free, problem-free, trouble-free life. And I think that's what God would want for me too if he really loved me, right? Wrong. Sometimes God's agenda, or all, all the time, God's agenda is way much more important than just our comfort. And God may make us uncomfortable so that he can move us, get our attention, wake us up. At the end of the day, though, God, you know, we love Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together to good for them that love him and who are called according to his purpose. God will take all those things in our lives the things that are just part and parcel of living in a fallen world, the things that we cause, things that people around us cause, or the things that God allows or God engineers. But God can take all of that, the pleasant and the painful, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he causes all that to work together for good. And he is sovereign over the circumstances of your life, and he can use all those things to move you, to change you, to teach you, to challenge you. Uh, God uses these things in our lives. God is sovereign. God is is in the details. God is in the details. So we have a pouting prophet. We have a sovereign God. And then thirdly, in our text, we have a pitiful comparison. We have a pitiful comparison, a comparison of pity. We have Jonah's pity versus God's pity or compassion. The word compassion in our text is the word for pity. It means to show mercy, have compassion, have pity on someone or something, especially to deliver someone from great punishment. Now, here's the comparison. God had pity on a people, the people of Nineveh. Jonah had pity on a plant. Jonah has pity. He has compassion on a plant. Now, in verse 4, the Lord asks the question, do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah doesn't even answer the question. He just storms off. And then God appoints this plant. It grows over, gives him shade, makes him comfortable, and then God kills the plant, takes it away, points a worm, take it away, then adds the hot wind to it. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Notice in verse 6, he's extremely happy. He's rejoicing with great rejoicing. Before it was was evil with great evil. Now he's rejoicing with great rejoicing. He is deliriously happy about this plant, and God takes it away. So now he's mad. And then God asks him again, is it good? Do you have, in verse 9, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Or is it causing good that you burn with anger? By the way, the Bible says the the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. Jonah, is it good? Is it causing good for you to be angry? Do you have a reason to be angry? And he says, yes, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. (laughs) I'm so angry I could die. Some scholars believe that this may be an idiomatic expletive. That is to say he's cussing. Blankety, blank, right. I'm mad. (laughs) I'm so mad I could die. And then in verse 10, God answers. And it gets lost in translation, but these are emphatic pronouns. God says, you, you, even you, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. You had compassion on the plant. Should I, even I, not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand? That is to say they're spiritually ignorant. They're spiritually naive. They're not innocent. No, these are the Assyrians. They have, they have earned the wrath of God. They're not innocent, but they're spiritually ignorant, as well as many animals. Jonah had pity on a plant. Now stop and think about that for a moment. That's weird. <laughs> you, you don't have pity on a plant, even if you like plants. Hey, they're plants. My grandmother had a green thumb. My grandmother could make a rock grow. I mean, she could grow anything. Her yard was just full of flowers. She could take one plant, break something off, and make another plant out of it. I mean, she could just, she could grow anything. But now I don't ever remember her grieving over a plant. No, when a plant dies, you go aw, and you throw it away and you plant a new plant. And of story. You don't pity a plant. Jonah grieves the loss of a plant. God has compassion on 120,000 people. In the economy of God, in a biblical worldview, humans are more valuable than animals. Animals are more valuable than plants. But here, Jonah's got everything upside down. He's tore up about one plant that he didn't plant. He just enjoyed the shade of it. But he's tore up over the death of one plant... But he couldn't care less about 120,000 people and the animals that it really wants to die. God, on the other hand, has compassion on the people and the animals. God's not grieved about the plant. So Jonah has it everything upside down and backwards. Uh, one commentator, John Hanna, wrote this. Jonah's affections were distorted. He cared more for a vine than for human lives. He cared more for his personal comfort than for the spiritual destiny of thousands of people. What a tragedy. Listen. What a tragedy when God's people care more for creaturely comforts than for the interest of God's will among men. Ouch. Now, we've, we've been giving Jonah a hard, <laughs> a hard time. I mean, we, there's a lot to fuss about when we look at Jonah. But we've also been seeing we're a whole lot more like, like Jonah than we want to admit. Many times we're modern-day Jonahs, and here's the case in point. How many times are we more concerned about our agendas, our preferences, our comfort, than we are about the spiritual condition of the people around us? Or as this writer would say, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. Well, so we have a pitiful comparison. I also want you to see in our text, we have a missed blessing. Not a mixed blessing, a missed blessing, a forfeited blessing. Now, Jonah did obey the Lord he finally got there Jonah chapter 3 Jonah got there he got to Nineveh he did what he was told to do way back in chapter 1 so he did obey but we have to admit he obeyed reluctantly in fact we even asked the question I think that was the second sermon in the series what's it going to take holy cow Jonah what's it going to take get you to do what you're supposed to do what's it going to take well for Jonah the answer was a near-death experience almost death by drowning and then God had to put him in underwater timeout for three days and three nights. And finally he comes around. God gives him a second chance. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And in Jonah chapter 3, he gets it done. He goes to Nineveh, preaches a five-word sermon, and the whole city repents. So he does, he does obey, but he does it reluctantly. He does it under duress. He didn't want to. He just, he, God had to get him there. And then also notice that Jonah obeyed resentfully. Now he obeyed. He got it done. He did, the, he did the thing, but he resents it. He's mad. He's been mad this whole chapter, all about it. He's mad about the mercy of God. He's mad about even being in Nineveh. He's mad that God relented. He's, he, he's, just, he's mad. He's a bowing prophet. He's sulking. He's mad. He even says, death to me is better than life. I'm so angry I could die. He obeyed, but he obeyed resentfully. No joy, <laughs> definitely no joy no blessing he resents it can i say that over the years i have known a number of christians who who did what they're supposed to do but they did it reluctantly and they did it resentfully they they did i mean they obeyed they did whatever they were supposed to be i mean they they tithed, or they came to church, or they served, or they ministered. They would do this and that, but it's kind of under duress. They were guilted into it, or they were bribed into it, or cajoled into it, or, hey, if you don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. Well, I guess I'll do it then. Reluctant obedience, or even sometimes resentful obedience. I've, I've talked to some Christians who there's kind of a, a low-key resentment that they're doing what they're doing, and that other people aren't doing it. Maybe they're giving I give, but, you know, I kind of resent giving. And if everybody gave, it wouldn't depend so much on me. And all, you know, it's just almost a resentment. Not a cheerful giver by any means, but just kind of a resentment. Or, hey, I'm here on Sunday nights, and then they look around. Why isn't everybody else here? If I, and the attitude is, you know, if I have to be here, everybody else should have to be here too. So it's not something they, they give to the Lord. It's not something that they receive from the Lord. It's something they resent doing. Or to serve in this way or minister in this way kind of a low-key resentment i'm doing it but i'm not happy about it here's what jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive now let me ask you do you believe that do you do you believe that now jesus said it and it's in the word of god do you believe it's more blessed to give than to receive There is a blessing in serving the Lord. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And we could apply that to ministry. The Lord loves a cheerful ministry. There is a blessing to be had, to be received, to be enjoyed when you serve God out of love and gratitude. There is a blessing to be had. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Jonah forfeited that blessing. He did what he had to do reluctantly, resentfully, But he forfeited the blessing. He could have, he should have served God joyfully. What if he had gone to Nineveh grateful that the word of the Lord came to him not once but twice and that God has chosen him for this specific task? What if he had gone to Nineveh joyfully? Now, he was happy to be alive in chapter 2. What if he had carried that joy with him? And and he could have rejoiced over God's mercy. To see a whole city repent. We talked about this last week. You know, you would think for a prophet, this is the best day of his life, the best day of his ministry. Not for Jonah. This is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It's the worst day ever. (laughs) The whole city repents. He wanted them destroyed. It could have been a day of rejoicing. It could have been... An ongoing blessing. What if Jonah had stayed there and taught the Ninevites about the God who just showed mercy to them? Jonah knows. We saw this before. Jonah knows, back in chapter 4 and verse 2, Jonah knows that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. What if he had stayed behind and said, Now, you Ninevites, God has spared you. Man, you were on on the timetable. You were on the schedule for destruction, and yet God has been merciful. Now, let me tell you more about this God that I know. What if he, in New Testament terms, what if he had discipled them, come along and taught them, revealed to them more about the God of Israel? I mean, who knows what might have happened in the history of Assyria. But no, that's not what we get from Jonah. He's up here. He's just mad and pouting and sulky and resentful, and he's so angry, he could just die. Hmm, a missed blessing. It's better to enjoy the blessing of serving the Lord. Well, then in our text we also have an unasked question. And uh, here Frank Page, a commentator named Frank Page, brought this out. I'm indebted to him. He said this, The Lord was trying forcefully to drive home the ultimate question. Who are you, Jonah, to question me? Why are you angry? Do you have a good reason to be angry? So God is asking the question, Who are you to question me? Jonah's anger expressed not only a lack of understanding, but also a lack of trust. Ooh, I like that. And really, that's kind of the subtext here. And that's really a fundamental question that you have to answer. That's a conviction you have to settle in your own heart. And boy, this gives me an idea for a whole series of my sermons. Here's here's something you need to nail down and nail it down good. Can God be trusted? if you can't say yes to that question, you're going to have a hard time just getting off the bubble. Can God be trusted? And that's really the question here for Jonah. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted to do right? Now, for Jonah, that means destroying the Ninevites. That's Jonah's perspective. But can, can, is, is God good? Is God just? Is God trustworthy? Will God do the right thing? And that's a question that you and I need to have answered in our heart of hearts you need to know in your heart of hearts, God is good. God is right. God is just. God can be trusted. I may not, I may not understand what God is doing, but I can trust God with what he's doing. I, I don't understand where God is going with this, but I can trust that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. That God is good, God is trustworthy, God is just, and I can trust God. That's kind of the unasked question. And then lastly, we have an unfinished story. The book of Jonah, you know, we're familiar with Jonah and the whale. We've been hearing that since we were kids. If We grew up in church. We knew that part of the story. But I hope you've seen as, as you go low and slow through the book of Jonah, man, there's a lot here. This is a fascinating story. A lot of twists and turns. Didn't see that coming. There's a lot here if you, if you really take it slow. But we come to the end of this fascinating story, and then there's really not an ending to it. It just kind of leaves you hanging. God asks a question that doesn't even end with a period. It ends with a question. And God asks Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh as, long as, as well as many animals? Shouldn't I have compassion on this city? And that's the end of the story. And we're kind of left wondering, what happened? Did Jonah come around? Did Jonah see the light? Did God have to knock him in the head again? I mean, what happened with Jonah? We don't know. And we end with a question, an unanswered question. And maybe it ends this way so that you and I have to answer the question. Shouldn't God have pity on these 120,000 people? And you and I know that the implied answer, the expected answer is yes. Because that's who God is. That's the heart of God. And then we're kind of forced to look at our own hearts and our own lives. You know, we have this... Boy, what a contrast. We have Jonah who, who has pity on a plant but not the people. He wants these people destroyed. And we have God who has pity on these people and he shows mercy to them. Are you more like Jonah or do you have the heart of God? Are you, are you more like a modern-day Jonah or, or do, you, do you have a hint of, of the heart of God, the love and mercy of God in your life? And we're kind of left with that, that examination. I read that in some Jewish tradition on the, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, some Jews would read the book of Jonah that afternoon. And then when they come to the end of the book, the answer, you know, how the book ends with a question, the answer is found in Micah. So let's take a look. You have Jonah, chapter 4, ends with a question, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, 120,000 people, as well as the animals? Now go to Micah, this is the very next book, Micah chapter 7. So in this Jewish tradition of reading Jonah, and then you go to Micah 7 and 18. The end, of jo- uh, the end of Micah reads this way, Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. So there's the answer to the question. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Yes, because that's who God is. That's the nature and character of God. The people of Nineveh needed God's mercy, God's compassion, god's forgiveness jonah needed god's mercy and god's compassion and god's forgiveness you and i need god's mercy and god's compassion and god's forgiveness when we come to the new testament we understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god that all we like sheep have gone astray each has turned to his own way there's none righteous no not one there's none that doeth good and that you and i have sinned against the holy god We are by nature children of wrath. The wrath of God abides upon us, and we are storing up wrath against the day of wrath. But God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was buried. He was raised again. And now he offers the gift of eternal life to whoever would repent and believe on him. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You'll never deserve it. It's God's gracious, merciful gift. And you receive it by receiving Jesus Christ. You turn from your sin, you put your faith in Jesus, and you cry out to him, Oh, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you're the Son of God, the only Savior. Have mercy on me. Come into my heart, forgive my sin, save my soul, take my life, be my Lord, save me. That's how you're saved. Have you done that? Has there been that time in your life when you've said yes to Jesus Christ? If not, if you're not sure, I invite you to come to him this morning. In a moment, we'll stand up and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus. I want to be saved. And if you'll say yes to Jesus Christ, this is what he'll do. Micah 7, he'll tread your iniquities underfoot. He'll cast your sins into the depths of the sea. He will forgive and pardon because that's who he is say yes to Jesus Christ. If you're looking for a church home and God has brought you here, we'd love to have you. You come forward and say, I want to join the church. We'll take it from there. Or if you want to follow him in baptism like Charlotte did, you come forward and say, I think I want to get baptized. Or if you want to pray with somebody, we'd love to pray with you. Whatever God may be saying to your heart and your life this morning, say yes to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, our savior. God, we thank you for the book of Jonah. And, uh, Lord, it's, it's kind of embarrassing how much of ourselves we see in Jonah from time to time. And in a lot of ways, we are modern-day Jonas. Lord, help us with that. Lord, we thank you that, that you are a God who would have compassion on the city of Nineveh, that you would have compassion on us, that you would send your Son to save sinners. God, just take charge of this time of decision. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.